Hello, this is the Evergreen Tree. I am your host, Brandon Lee Lewis. It has been a while since the last posting of this podcast. But I was not laying idle. I was doing some studying and some observations of what's going on right now. The date is October 26, 2020. It is a week and a day before the main elections. Well, you can say that the elections are going on right now due to mail-in ballots. This episode is going to talk about the circumstances that surround presidential elections in our modern age. This has been brought about due to a discussion I had with a colleague of mine. And after an an event that we both participated in, we had a personal discussion about the state of politics in America. And in the middle of this conversation, I came to a consensus within myself. I started to put two things together or several things together. And it got spurred about by asking myself this question. Why is it that the election of the presidency is is encompassed with so much passion and so much alarm. And of course, I voiced that to my colleague in the discussion. And at first, it didn't necessarily ring a bell to him because it seemed like to him that that's the way it should be. However, now I'm I'm, ste- I'm stepping I'm stepping aside from that story and just solely addressing you. But however, I beg to differ on that. Now granted, the president is an important is is an important post in the federal government. But it seems to me that the modern age of the presidency has more of an alarm to it, or should I say the choice in presidency or of the president has more of an alarm to it than it has in times past, at least in the popular sense. Of course, I'm not, uh, I am not equating this with the times of the Civil War and the elections of Abraham Lincoln. That, that was very, that, that was a very trying time for this country. And 
the election at that time caused an eruption of of animosity amongst the citizens of America. But in general, especially before the, the Civil War, the concerns of who the president is, I calculate, was not as concerning as it is today. Now, of course, when you have an hypothesis, you have to ask the question, why is that true? And this is why I believe that that hypothesis is true. Over the course of the many decades, especially after that watershed moment, the Civil War, and the so-called reunification of the United States of America, notice I said so-called, the office of the presidency, the public office of the presidency, or the public servant known as the President of the United States, has steadily gained more power, especially after the years of the early 1900s. Now, why do I point out that time of the early 1900s? Well, around that time, or maybe a little bit before that time, there was a political philosophy that was applied to the Constitution of the United States. And that political philosophy is entitled the Living Constitution. It sounds beautiful, doesn't it? But if you understand the Constitution and what it was meant to do, you would know that the Living Constitution political philosophy or concept is detrimental to the fabric of this country. And in spite of all of that, this country has been falling headlong into the living constitution doctrine. And one of the many consequences of that is, again, the presidency has gained more power than what it has originally been given or allowed to have by the Constitution of the United States. So, it is of no consequence that since the president has more power, the people will have more concern as to who that president is. Due to the simple fact that the president has less restrictions on him and the president, especially as we move forward in time, the president can have more direct influence into many aspects of your life. Certain aspects before at the beginning or the founding of these countries of this country, those aspects were off limits to the president. But now in this modern day and age, I will say again, those aspects of your life 
which were once upon a time off limits to the president is now within his jurisdiction. And see, it makes sense for the American people to have this concern, and it makes sense that through that concern, they criticize the constitutional process of electing the president via electorates. Now, if you have the president in his original form, then it would be safe to say that the American people would not have as much concern or if any concern at all that the president would be elected by electors. Now, I don't want to get too deep into that because it's too far off of the subject. We'll get to that later, uh, which is the Electoral College. But let me just take this one thing about the Electoral College. The, ele the Electoral College was formed to make sure that not one president will be elected through foreign influence. Also, too, due to the demands of the office of the presidency, those who elect the president must be mindful of the demands of the presidency. Hence, we have a council of electorates. Now, it turned into electoral college because they wanted to have more safeguards against influence of the electorate. So what happened so what happened to the electorate was according according to the number of houses they have in, I mean number of seats that they have in the House of Representatives and of course you have the two seats of the Senate but depending on how many how, how many seats each state has in the house and then you include their two seats in the Senate that determines how many electorates that they have. Now, the electorates are not supposed to meet. I will say it again. The electorates are not supposed to meet in a national convention. They're supposed to elect in within their separate states at their own particular time that is appointed. And again, the reason for this is to make sure that there is no Influence from the outside. This is to safeguard this country from being infiltrated by a puppet or a puppet president that has been propped up by a foreign power. It's a pretty, it's a pretty genius way of safeguarding against that. And it was also a genius way to, in safeguarding the selection of the presidency from the knee-jerk reactions of the populace. Now, granted, the populace still has some say-so in the election of the presidency through the selection of the electorate. Now, depending on the state, it depends on how those electorates or those electors are selected. Now, whether it's direct or indirect, 
I have to dig in more into that. But I can say at this point of time, the people of each state has influence in the choice of the, uh, of their electorate by the selection of their individual or the legislatures or the congresses of their individual states. And also the selection of their governors. So that's how the people have control of the presidential election. Now we do have a popular vote. The popular vote is just merely seen as a point of influence on the electors. Now it's up to the electors to go with the popular vote or not. Again, the electors have the expertise to see what it takes or they know what it takes. They have the expertise to know what it takes for a person to be successful as president. They also have the expertise to size up a presidential candidate. Also by law, the electors cannot have any personal relationship to any presidential candidate. And another thing that has been lost in the wash of history, we have not always had presidential elections where there was only two candidates. The evidence is proof. The evidence comes when we read the documents of the founding fathers. When we look at in the case of a tiebreaker, the, the uh, House of Representatives in the case of the president himself, electing president himself, or electing the president himself, the House of Representatives will take the top five candidates and then select from those five the one that is most fit for office. And of course, that process happens for the vice president, and, and that happens through the Senate. But notice the key here. It says top five candidates not two, five. So, we have seen that the way our government has been conducted has gone through some major changes throughout the years. And many of those changes have been brought about through the concept of the living constitution. Philosophy, if you can call it that. Now, to get back to the conversation that I had with my colleague, one thing I said to him stuck with him. And I said this, the reason why America constantly finds itself in these political messes, these political conflicts with one another, especially in regards to elections, is because that the American populace in general does not know how its own government is supposed to work. Now, why is that? Well, you'll be hard-pressed nowadays to go to any school and see if they read the Constitution of the United States. And don't even ask if, if any school in this country have ever read one shred of the Federalist Papers, you'll be, it'll be impossible these days to find a school that has even 
a copy of the Federalist Papers in their library. I state that with confidence. Most people who are alive, most, I would say, under the age of 50, does not know what the Federalist Papers are. Now, the Federalist Papers are very important because it shows the intentions behind the Constitution of the United States. And therefore, it really nullifies the living Constitution philosophy, which it is, or the living Constitution philosophy states that the Constitution should be molded to the times in which it is being applied. In other words, it is not going strictly by the letter of it. It can change. It can mean one thing one day and mean another thing another day. That's what the living constitution um, philosophy says. But you don't have to take my word for it. I will be reading some things to you so that you know that I am not just making this stuff up. But to get back to the Federalist Papers, the Federalist Papers were written to try to give the American people a clear reason of the intentions or a clear view, sorry, a clear view of the intentions behind the Constitution. The people of the United States were, at that time, they had to look, they were uh, coming up to a period where they had to evaluate the Constitution and approve it. Ratification. That's what the process is. And so the Federalist Papers was written by uh, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and I believe it's uh, John Jay to help the American populace, especially those in the state of New York, which was one of those pitiful, uh, those uh, pivotal states of ratification. It is designed to help the people of America and New York to see the clear-cut intentions behind the Constitution. And in doing so, they have left a valuable document to antiquity and to its progeny, which is us. Whenever we have a question into how the Constitution was designed to work and its, ten and its intentions behind it, we must look at the Federalist Papers. Of course, there are other writings that help with that, but the Federalist Papers are a primary tool for that. So don't you find it odd that a small percentage, maybe in the single digits of Americans today, a small percentage of us has read the Federalist Papers. And I'm not just talking about a key few of them. I mean all of them. All of them. 
from one Federalist paper number one all the way to Federalist paper number 85. Every single one. That should be required reading for every American. Now, you're not supposed to drive a car without reading the instruction manual, right? Or operate any appliance without reading the, instru the instruction manual. Now, I know plenty of you do. But that's not the intention. And with things become more important and become more valuable, it is more essential that you read the instruction manual. The Constitution is a guideline for the government. And you, the people, have to make sure that the government stays within its strict boundaries. If it doesn't, then the government will get out of control and you lose control of aspects of your life. So don't you find it essential that you have to read the instruction manual for the government and how how this country is supposed to work. But yet, unfortunately, it is very uncommon that Americans read the instruction manuals. That being the Constitution of the United States and the Federalists. Most of you, or most Americans, read the Bill of Rights. And they think that the Bill of Rights gave them certain rights. But that is an incorrect view. The Bill of Rights merely states rights that were already given to you by nature. That's it. It only addresses the relationship of government to those rights. And it made a key or it made a few key examples, 10 of them, out in the open so that if the government does impede on any of those rights, it is very obvious that they did. Now, they didn't have to write the Bill of Rights because you already had those rights. It was just written again to make it plainly obvious to anyone if the government oversteps any of them. That's the reason why the Bill of Rights was written. And of course, it was a key point of ratification. If you read the history of the ratification of the uh, Constitution of the United States, you will see that there was a, uh, that was a key point of ratification. And the intention behind that was, as I said, to make it plainly obvious when the government oversteps its bounds in relationship to those selected rights. That's it. It didn't give the American people any rights. Okay? Remember, as I've said before in another episode of this podcast, the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights is a is addressed to the government. It tells the government what powers it has and what restrictions it has. That's what the Constitution is for. 
And since we do not read it, and since we do not follow or keep track of the instruction manual, we have left room for weasels to come in and insert their philosophy called the living constitution, therefore putting power in places or in offices where it should not be and allowing government to overstep its bounds. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. But before, before, before I go there, let's set this up. What are some of the instances that the gov uh, that the president can overstep his bounds? Where where has he overstepped his bounds nowadays in comparison to the Constitution? Well, let's take a look at the president being able to dictate what type of health insurance you can get or what businesses can be ran or how commerce can be operated. And there are many aspects, there are many, there are some other aspects, but those are a few that comes to mind. Now, there are powers that the president has is very clear. And you can read the Constitution to find that out. One is the appointee of, of Supreme Court justices in other uh, constitutional offices and also other offices that has been established by law through through the legislative branch others is to uh to set up treaties with countries but he does not have an unrestricted power in that the senate has to make sure that the treaty is legit I'm putting these things into a into layman's terms here. But you you get what I'm saying. The presidency also has a veto power. If a bill passes the House and passes the Senate, then it goes to the desk of the president and he can veto it or okays it. And if he says nothing on it for a certain period of time, then the bill automatically passes. But say if he vetoes it. Then it goes back to Congress and it has to pass by, I believe, two thirds. And if it passes by two thirds, then it becomes law. But notice it says nowhere in there that the president has any power to write any law. But now we find nowadays that the presidency is writing what's called executive orders. And he is using these executive orders or many presidents or people who have held that office have used executive orders to basically write new legislation that affects the American people. That is one clear-cut area, one obvious and very detrimental area where the office of the presidency has grown past its native restraints. Now let's go to the Federalist Papers. We're going to look at the end of Federalist Paper, Federalist Paper uh, 69. 
And the reason why I'm reading this, reading this is so that you can see the comparison of the original presidency of the United States to a true monarch. Someone who has both executive and legislative powers in his hands. And in some countries, he also has the judicial power, which makes him a complete tyrant. But in this case, they compare him to the king of Great Britain. So, with no further ado, let's see what it says. Hence, it appears that, except as to the concurrent authority of the president in the article of treaties, it would be difficult to determine whether that magistrate would, in the aggregate, possess more or less power than the governor of New York. And it appears yet more unequivocally that there is no pretense for the parallel which has been attempted between him and the King of Great Britain. But to render the contrast of this respect still more striking, it may be of use to throw the principal circumstances and dissimilitude into a closer group. Here we go. The president of the United States would be an officer elected by the people for four years. The King of Great Britain is a perpetual and hereditary prince. Very obvious. The one, the president, whenever they say the one, he's referring to the president. The one would be amenable to personal punishment and disgrace. The person of the other which is the king of Great Britain, is sacred and inviolable. The one, which is the president, would have a qualified negative upon the acts of the legislative body. Emphasis on qualified, which in, entails what I have described before what, and what happens when a president vetoes a bill that comes from the Senate and the House and comes across his desk. Okay? If he vetoes it, then it goes back to the House and the Senate, and then and if enough of them passes it in a second viewing of the law in those particular houses or in Congress, then the law passes anyway, despite the presidential veto. The other has an absolute negative, meaning the king of Britain has an absolute absolute negative. That means that if he says no, then the law then the law fails. The bill fails. No matter if the entire Congress agrees to it, the king can come in and say no and it goes and it's null and void. The one, the president will have a right to command the military and naval forces of the nation. Now, granted, this right comes. I'll hold that thought. The other, in addition to this right, possesses the declaration or possesses that of declaring war and of raising and regulating fleets and armies by his own authority. That's why I wanted to hold that thought, because I didn't want to steal Mr. Hamilton's thunder here. But to sum that little part up into a nutshell 
the president of the United States has command over the, over the military and naval forces, but he cannot raise the military and the naval forces. Okay, he cannot commission officers. Only Congress can do that. Only, only the Senate can do that. Not the president. Also, the president cannot declare war. Only Congress can do that. So he does not have a total control of the martial functions of the government, unlike the king of Great Britain or any other king for that matter. That king can declare war anytime he wants. He can raise armies in any way that he wants. Now we have occurrences here in modern America where the president can start proxy wars. He doesn't even need to go through Congress to do it. Look at what happened in, in, uh, in our recent wars. Have we had formal declarations of war? No. But we have forces all over the globe right now. That's that living constitution philosophy that I mentioned earlier at play. Let's see what else that Hamilton has to say. The one, meaning the president, would have a concurrent power with a branch of the legislature in the formation of treaties, and that branch is the Senate. The other, meaning the king of the uh, the king of Great Britain, the other is the sole possessor of the power of making treaties. Now, treaties are agreements with other countries, and depending what the what these uh, agreements are, it can shape the laws of the United States. Because if you have laws that go against a certain treaty, then it, it makes it impossible for the country to uphold a treaty. That's why the presidency has a concurrent power with the Senate in forming treaties. And it has to in the Constitution, because the president cannot legislate any laws. But the king can, because he has both executive, which is the execution of the government, and the legislative functions of government within his hands. So there will be no need to consult anyone else. He can make treaties with any country, whatever treaty, with whatever country, in whatever time he wants. Continuing, the one, the president, would have a like concurrent authority in appointing to offices. The other is the sole author of all appointments. The one, the president, can confer no privilege whatsoever. The other, the king, can make dizzians of aliens or denizens of aliens. Noblemen of commoners can erect, can erect corporations with all the rights uh, incident to corporate bodies. The one, the president, can prescribe no rules concerning the commerce or currency of the nation. The other, the king, is in several respects the arbiter of commerce, and in this capacity can, can establish markets 
and fares, can regulate weights and measures, can lay embargoes for a limited time, can coin money, can authorize or prohibit the circulation of foreign coin. This, or the one has, the presidency, the one has no practical or spiritual jurisdiction. The other is the supreme head and governor of the national church. And he put an exclamation point after that, which is, that's pretty huge. Now, we see presidents throughout the line talk about religion. Now, granted, religion is very important, but it is it has no place in the presidency. The only the only concern that the president has in terms of religion is making sure that no one's uh, natural right or God given right to practice his religion is violated. That's the only concern of the presidency. In terms of religion, he cannot dic- he cannot dictate who you worship, when and where. But the time is coming, and it's very soon. I mean, you can hear it that the government is trying to restrict who or what religion or what God you pray to, and when and where. So it continues, or Hamilton continues, what answer shall we give to those who would persuade us that things so unlike resemble each other? The same that ought to be given to those who tell us that a government, the whole power of which would be in the hands of the elective and uh, periodical servants of the people, is an aristocracy, a monarchy, and a despotism. So that was his uh, that was his answer to the critics of the Constitution. And I'm pretty sure that you have heard that he has stated his point very clearly, and you can't really dispute his point. See, these if you read the Constitution and compare it to what the uh, to what Mr. Hamilton has said in the Federalist, the 69th Federalist paper, you will see that the office of the presidency is limited. But nowadays, it is not as limited as it it has, as it was uh, initially set out to be. Now, let's turn to Federalist number 70, Federalist number 70, and read a few excerpts. Now, the reason why I'm reading these is to show the separation of the legislative powers from the executive branch and why that is important and what the intentions were for the founding fathers in setting this up this way. Here we go. Those politicians and statesmen who have been the most celebrated for the soundness of their principles and for the justice of their views have declared in favor of a single executive and a numerous legislature. They have, with great 
propriety, propriety considered energy as the most necessary qualification of the former. The former being the uh, executive branch or the presidency. And have regarded this as most applicable to power in a single hand, which makes a lot of sense because if government needs to act, it needs to act immediately. Now, granted, the government has to act within certain guidelines. That's why the executive can only operate by law. It cannot do whatever it wants. It has to move, but it cannot move in the way that that is uh, arbitrary. He cannot move on his own whim. He has to follow the law and con the Constitution. Moving on with the statement of the Federalists here, Federalist number 70. While they have, with equal propriety, considered the, the latter, which is the legislature, as best adapted to deliberation and wisdom, and best calculated to conciliate, uh, conciliate the confidence of the people and to secure the privileges and interests. So, conciliate the confidence of the people and to secure their privileges and interests. Notice it says deliberation and wisdom. You see, the arguments that happens in Congress, we see them today as being dysfunctional. But it was actually designed to work that way. You see, before a law has to be put in, out into the government or out in the open as a law where the executive will act upon it, it must be, it must be examined turn inside out, dispute it, and, and advertise or support it, argued against, argued for. It has to be thoroughly looked at before it can be said that this is the way things are going to go in the future. So you see that there's a tremendous responsibility there. You cannot leave that to one person. It's especially if that person is, is responsible for the execution of the government and the execution of the law. So you see, that is the use of the legislative body. And you see why it is important to separate the execution of the government and the, legis and the legislating of the laws of the government. Moving forward in the Federalist number 70, it says this, men often oppose a thing merely because they have had no agency in planning it or because it may have been planted by those whom they dislike. But if they have been consulted and have happened to disapprove, opposition then becomes, in their estimation, an indispensable duty of self-love. They seem to think themselves bound in honor and by all the motives of personal infallibility 
to defeat the success of which has been resolved upon contrary to their sentiments. To defeat the success of what has been resolved upon contrary to their sentiments. Men of upright benevolent tempers have too many opportunities of remarking with horror to what desperate lengths this disposition is sometimes carried and how often the great interests of society are sacrificed to the vanity, to the conceit, and to the obstinacy, obstinacy of individuals who have credit enough to make their passions and their caprices interesting to mankind. And we see that happening a lot today. Perhaps the question now before the public may, in its consequences, afford melancholy proofs of the effects of this despicable frailty or rather detestable vice in the human character. Upon the principles of a free government, inconveniences from the source just mentioned must necessarily be submitted to in the formation of the legislature. And this is where these arguments are supposed to be taking place. But it is unnecessary and therefore unwise to introduce them into the constitution of the executive. It is here, too, that they may, wait, it is here, too, that they may be most pernicious or pernicious in the legislature promptitude of decisions or promptitude of decision is oftener an evil than a benefit okay so that's saying that making quick decisions in the legislature is not a good thing why well as we said earlier the legislature has to examine every bill to see if it is a good way of moving forward for the government and the american people Continuing, the differences of opinion and the jarrings of parties in that department, the legislative branch of the government, though they may sometimes obstruct solitary plans, yet often promote deliberation and circumspection and serve to check excesses in the majority. When a resolution too is once taken, the, opposi the opposition must be at an end. That resolu resolution is a law and resistance to it is punishable. But no favorable circumstances uh, palliate or atone for the disadvantages of dissension in, this, in the executive department. Here, they are pure and unmixed. There is no point at which they cease to operate. They serve to embarrass and weaken the, exec the execution of the plan or measure to which they relate from the first step of the final conclusion or from the first step to the final conclusion of it. They constantly counteract those qualities in the executive which are the most necessary, most necessary ingredients in its composition vigor and expedition and this without any counterbalancing good 
So you see, this is why we have one of the main reasons why we have it, it, the separation. Well, it wasn't just one reason. There, this this statement was several reasons as to why we have a separation between the executive powers and the legislative powers and why the executive powers is in the hands of basically one person and the legislative branch is in the hands of several persons or a group or a body. Well, in our case, two bodies, the Senate and the House of Representatives. Now, let's move on to the living constitution, which I do recommend that you find out about. But do not, and I, will, I can't state this more heavily, I'll say it this way, read the Constitution of the United States, the Bill of Rights, it's all part of the Constitution of the United States, the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers, and the Anti-Federalist Papers. Okay? Read all of those. But don't just read them. Understand them. Have a firm understanding in all of these. You can do it. You have a brain. You can do it. And they, they wrote these things in plain English. You can understand it. You do not need a law degree to figure this stuff out and to read these documents. Okay? The founding fathers purposely did it this way because they understood that many malicious intents can be hidden within complex legal talk. And if they were around today and see the complexity of our government and of our uh, how things are being written, even in our legislative branch, they will be taken aback. But fortunately for us, the primary instruments of our government or the primary instruments in which the government are supposed to obey, being the Constitution of the United States, then the Declaration of Independence, and then also, too, when we want to examine the intention behind these things, the Federalist Papers. And then also we want to look at the, the, uh, the, the arguments that gave reason for the Federalist Papers. We want to look at that, too, because in, in those things we see the pitfalls that could happen to the American people if we're not diligent in upholding the principles of the Constitution. They are in the Anti-Federalist Papers. So it is essential that we read all of those things with understanding. And when you do that, then you can look into the living Constitution philosophy. And when you look at that, then you will see exactly what is going on today. And it will provide answers into why, whenever we have a presidential election now, every time, Every presidential election, the maliciousness between different groups of people gets turned up. Every four years, the, the uh, amplitude of, of the vitriol 
gets turned up in between different factions of people. The, the, uh, the alertness or the alarmed nature of everyone in relationship to the selection of the president gets turned up every four years. And every four years when it comes around, that, that, uh, that volume is higher than the previous four years. And it will continue to do so if we continue in this way. But again, when we read or find out about the living constitutional philosophy, it will clearly give us the mechanisms or the reasons why it is happening. Now, one main thing, though, that it doesn't state as to why this is happening is because it's because uh, it is hitting right in plain sight. And this is the one very reason, which is this. We don't know how our government works. I've said this before. Because we don't understand these documents. And then also, too, through our schooling, people are mis-schooled. They are schooled. They are programmed. You're, they're not, they're not uh, encouraged to look at the Federalist Papers, the Constitution of the United States. So they don't know how these things are going to work and they don't want to know how these things are going to work because it's not cool to know how these things work. Most people don't want to be bothered about these things. So when they don't want to be bothered, well, then it makes the time, it makes the uh, waters very ripe for those who hold a living constitutional philosophical uh, mandate to come and take away the things that were secured to you by blood and hard work and tears. Now, I'm going to read one thing to you that's coming from the living constitution uh, philosophical side. It is called it is an excerpt from a paper called Constitutional Government in the United States. Sounds very official, doesn't it? Sounds like it's for the Constitution of the, of the United States. Well, but hold your horses. Grenades will be happy with this title. Now, this, this paper was written by a former president of the United States. This president, I can go out on the limb, or it is my opinion, and I'm pretty sure those of you who know will concur in my opinion, this person was the worst president of the United States. Oh, no. You're saying it's not Trump? No, it isn't Trump. No. Now, granted... Most of our presidents in modern history have been terrible, detrimental, but none of them scratches or can latch the shoelaces of Wildrow Wilson in terms of how terrible of a president one can be. Wildrow Wilson has done much damage. In terms of eroding the Constitution of the United States, 
Will Joe Wilson has done much and major damage. So let's go into this wonderful piece of piece of work that he's uh, that he's made, and let's see what he has to say. I'll read one excerpt here. Let's see, or maybe several of them. Let's see what he has to say. Oh, let's do this one. It is merely the proof that our government is a living, organic thing and must, like every other government, like every other government, like every other government, <laughs> work out the close synthesis of active parts which can exist only when leadership is lodged in some one man or group of men. It's complete opposite of what we were what we were reading in the Federalist Papers. You cannot compound a successful government out of antagonisms. Wait, but the Federal the Federalist Papers says that you could if you put those antagonisms in the right place and separate them from other uh, powers that can use those antagonisms to the detriment of society. What else? What else do you have to say, Mister Wilson? Greatly as the practice and influence of presidents has varied, there can be no mistaking that, or there can be no mistaking the fact that we have grown more and more inclined from generation to generation to look to the president as the unifying force in our complex system, the leader both of his party and of his nation. And I will add, the American people are starting to see the president each and every day, more and more each and every day, more and more each and every election cycle as a king. And you see, Mr. Will Joe Wilson has stated as such in this paper. You see, this is the this is the manipulation that the American people has been going has been has been under for at least the past hundred years. And here it is, written in plain black and white. You see, I'm not making this stuff up. Here it is. Will Joe Wilson. Should I read it again? Okay, I will. Greatly as the practice and influence of presidents has varied, there can be no mistaking the fact that we have grown more and more inclined from generation to generation to look to the president as the unifying force in our complex system, the leader both of his party and of the nation. To do so is not inconsistent with the actual provisions of the Constitution. That is a complete, complete, utter lie. To do so is inconsistent with the actual provisions of the Constitution. It is amazing that this person, this man, this, this malcontent is able to sit up here and write this outright lie. And this, it is even more amazing to me that the American people has fallen for it. But alas, here we are. Again, I'll read it again. To do so is not inconsistent with the actual provisions of the Constitution. 
let me back up. I'll read this part again. I can't read it. I, I can't read it anymore. I, I have to continue to read it so you can hear what is going on here. Maybe it might ring a bell and and it will stir something up in you. And you will realize that things are trying to be, things are being stolen from you. Again, Wiljo Wilson says, greatly as Wiljo Wilson says, he says, greatly as the practice and influence of presidents has varied, there can be there can be no mistaking the fact that we have grown more and more inclined from generation to generation to look to the president as the unifying force in our complex system, the leader both of his party and of the nation. To do so is not inconsistent with actual provisions of the Constitution. It is only inconsistent with the very mechanical theory and its meaning and intention. The Constitution contains no theories, he says. Now you see why it is important for us to read the Federalist Papers. If we read the Federalist Papers, we can see right through junk like that. Academic, academic jargon that is used to disguise malicious intent. An intent to dismantle the restrictions of government. Therefore, allowing government to get bigger and larger and to take complete control of your life from the most minute detail to the largest aspect. Now you see why it is important to read the instruction manual. And if we read our instruction manuals, we will not be distracted by presidential races because we will get to the crux of the matter. We will ask the right question and the right question is this, which one of these candidates, and it should not just be two, which one of these candidates is fit for the public service of being the president of the United States? And it will not be a hard question for us to answer because if we read our Constitution and the Federalist Papers, we will understand what his job is and the intentions of the guidelines that set up his job, his or her job. So, I hope that all of you Come to the realization, as my colleague has when we had our discussion. You come to the realization that you have to sit down and read the Federalist Papers, the Constitution of the United States, and all the other documents I had mentioned before, the Bill of, well, the Declaration of Independence and the Anti-Federalist Papers. Those four things. The Federalist Papers, Constitution of the United States, Declaration of Independence and the Anti-Federalist Papers. 
I hope you come to that conclusion. My colleague, to his credit, came to that came to that conclusion, and I did not even mention the Federalist Papers. I just made a point, or we made a point, stating that in order to elect responsibly or to know what we are electing, we have to know how the country is meant to be ran. It is impossible to have an informed election when you don't know what the president is supposed to be doing. You're just, if you're voting without knowing these things, you're just voting for your own self-interest. And that's not how it's supposed to work. If you're voting merely for your own self-interest, well, then you do not have a republic. And yes, this is a republic. It is not a democracy. There's a difference. And so you see, there's another point of manipulation. You're constantly being told that this is, the, this is a democracy, and it's not. And because you think it's a democracy, then it must be your duty to vote for your own self-interest. And that's not the case. If everyone is voting for their own self-interest, then this thing can go in many ways. And it will destroy this country as it is happening right now. But if we know how these things are supposed to work, then we can safeguard this country, the people, your rights, your lives against the usurpation of the government, the government that is supposed to serve you. But you have to have knowledge of the instruction manual. There are many other areas where the living constitution concept has eroded the functionings of our government to our detriment. One is in regard to the Senate. Some of you probably know what I'm talking about. But most of you don't. It has to do with how our Senate is elected. Now, granted, this got changed in a constitutional matter because this was changed via an amendment. An amendment that was passed, I believe, in 1913. Was it 1913? Yes, it was It was passed in 1913, July 15, 1913. That was the 17th Amendment. That amendment says that the Senate can be selected by a popular vote. Well, originally, if you read the Constitution, which I hope you are doing and I hope you will, the Senate was supposed to be selected by the state legislators. And we'll come to the reason for that on another day. But we're going to stop here. And I hope through this through this episode, you have a clearer understanding of what's supposed to be happening in presidential elections. And you have a clearer understanding why what is happening right now is, is very, very, very terrible for us. Anyone that has knowledge of these things. Look at what's happening now with trepidation.
anyone who has knowledge of these things that I spoke about before cannot find any just argument to vote for either one of these candidates. You probably will have a hard time of selecting or electing any candidate in the past many elections. Now that leaves us that leaves us with the duty here. We have to read our instruction manual, but then we also have to try to bring the horses back into the barn. Now granted, that is a hard thing to do, especially when it comes to governments. Once the horses leave the barn, it is very hard to put them back. But those of us who understand the republic and love the republic and understands what it's for and how important it is, and why it should be there, especially in protection for uh, the children that come after us. Those of us who understand these things, we have to try. We can't give up. Who else will? We have to. Otherwise, it'll be the end. And the beacon of hope for the whole world for man to control his own destiny as far as his individual life is concerned. Now, granted, I'm not talking about in relationship to God. That's a whole nother thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about man in relationship to other men. The ability of man to have his, has his responsibility in his hands in relationship to other men will be in jeopardy. If we do not succeed in bringing these horses back into the barn. You see, this is bigger than our own self-interest. This is about the future of mankind. So those of you who have told me that, well, you might as well vote for your own self-interest. Well, you, now you know why I do not do that. And I find it irresponsible to do so. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Evergreen Tree. I am your host, Brandon Lee Lewis. Do not let the circumstances of the elections get to you. Do not get caught up in the pageantry of the elections. See things for what they really are. See through the veil. See through the smoke screen. See through the empty words and get to the crux of the matter. Our republic depends upon it. Our ability to be responsible for ourselves depends upon it. And most importantly, the future of mankind depends upon it. Thank you very much.